sadly, one of the things that I think may have to happen before there's a, a real catalyst here is like 20, uh, in 2016 was the announcement for Unit 1 to be shut down in 2025. That first unit being shut down may be a real catalyst for a lot of people to say, yes, this really is happening. In 2020, the owners of the Craig Coal-Fired Power Plant, located in rural northwest Colorado, announced they'd be closing the facility by 2030. The first of three units is scheduled to be retired in 2025, followed by 2028 and 2030 for the other two. Depending on who you talk to, some are preparing for economic disruption and loss of jobs, while some don't think it's actually going to happen. While the plan is to retire the coal operations, there are conversations about the potential to repurpose the plant and existing infrastructure. From geothermal to hydrogen to nuclear, what could happen with the Craig station remains to be decided. In this bonus episode of Coal at Sunset, a Colorado town in transition, we'll talk about what's next with the infrastructure and workforce. And is nuclear energy a potential option? I'm your host, Kristen Uhlenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, thanks for joining us in the latest production of our podcast, Laws of Notion. We're picking back up my conversation from last episode with Tim Osborne, Vice President for Generation at Tri-State. Tim is telling me about options for the Craig Station. We looked at the feasibility of several different technologies to repurpose the plant. And uh, we have good infrastructure. It's clear that, that the infrastructure is good. But to do retrofits or make some other technology work there, real challenges, even with this EPRI study, it's, uh, it indicates that the, the solar, the wind, the molten salt, they didn't come back with flying colors saying, hey, this is a great spot to do this. EPRI stands for the Electric Power Research Institute, a leading independent nonprofit that researches issues, technology gaps, and other needs for the energy sector. And then the RFP was to go out for like a hydrogen hub type of situation. And uh, Craig, I don't believe, is in the running for that right now. So that makes another challenge. You, you have all this, this hope that's generated for some of these projects, and then you, you find out that you're not in the running for them. Side note, you can listen to our interview with Dwayne Hiley, CEO of Tri-State, back in 2021 in bonus episode number two, when we were talking about the feasibility of putting hydrogen at the station, as well as his views on other technologies. Lots of opportunity, I think, but no, no answers right now and no, uh, no clear, I'll say clear direction um, for the community. There is an inherent tension about what is best for the community and what is feasible from a business perspective. Tri-State is a 42-member-owned utility co-op, meaning they have a lot of voices around the table, helping direct where and how they generate power and make decisions. One of the main ones is our members. What, what do they need? What's the demand? Uh, where is the demand? And then how can we provide that? So we forecast 
what's our load, what's the load growth out into the future ways, what resources we're going to need. I'd say fundamentally that's what we look at first. And then economics after that. So it, it's going to flow that direction. It always is. But Tri-State isn't the only player. The Craig Power Station actually has five owners, including Excel Energy, the Salt River Project, the Platte River Power Authority, and Pacific Corps. Each of these utilities has different portfolios, business operations, and geographic reach. So while it was agreed upon to stop operations and retire the coal facilities at Craig, there are still people looking into the feasibility of what's possible with the infrastructure, whether that's the plant, the transmission lines, as well as the skilled workforce. In the 2023 federal funding bill, Tri-State got $200,000 to support a study looking at how to repurpose the facility for clean energy research and development. I think the, the hard part is the decision. I think once the decision is made, this is the direction we're going to go, people will jump right in line with that and, and go. But I, I think there's so much information out there and so many directions that people think we ought to go that the decision-making is just really difficult right now. If somebody, an outside enterprise that wanted to come in and say purchase the area for a nuclear small modular reactor, there's good interconnection there, that could be a potential. For Tri-State, we're still trying to evaluate all of the options. Nuclear is one of them. And I can hear uh, in the back of my mind here, my boss is saying, yippee, go go nuclear, because he came from the Navy and has a, lots of a good experience from submarines and the nuclear power side of that. I was in a couple of conversations about that 10-year process to get permitting and siting, if that could be speeded up some, that you look at it and say, okay, 10 years, that doesn't necessarily fit the window for Craig Station. I think that there's lots of people that are open for that discussion, but... Craig, as a community, will need to pick a direction and go. So there are options on the table being discussed, all with some level of trade-off, whether it's economics, workforce, environmental impact or benefits, politics, the list goes on. There was another community meeting this past June in Craig, talking about what's next for the region. And nuclear energy, again, came up as a possibility. So I wanted to learn more. I'm Christine King. I'm the director for the Gateway for Accelerated Innovation and Nuclear Gain. I'm proud to lead this organization. We're a small, agile change agent inside the national labs and the DOE. If you're interested in nuclear, we should be the first people that you call. We'll listen and we'll get you to the right experts. Christine has an unassuming demeanor. She's quick to laugh, a great listener, and has an amazing wealth of experience and knowledge about new nuclear and the potential for it across the U.S. In September of 2022, the U.S. Department of Energy reported that there are hundreds of coal-fired power plants across the country that could be candidates for converting to nuclear. The study found that the conversion would provide big decarbonization gains, 
as well as economic, employment, and environmental benefits to the communities where those plants are located. In the study, five Colorado coal plants had the characteristics to support a transition to advanced nuclear. So the good thing is because we've already done an initial screening of those sites, we can share what we know so far. And we did not find any exclusionary factors for pursuing advanced nuclear. In some cases, I think there were some challenges for putting in a large light water reactor. But we can start with, this is what we know today about your site. And I think a good way to start for utility is, what are my business objectives going forward for this particular location? And that feeds into, what am I expecting my energy demand to be? Are there other industries that we might want to attract because we have this? What other infrastructure do I have? In some places, they have natural gas and that kind of infrastructure, so they might look at producing hydrogen with an advanced nuclear station. I think primarily in northwestern Colorado, we're talking about electricity. However, I think there's potential to think about hosting data centers and that data centers are very energy intensive. It's challenging, though. These are billion-dollar projects, and you have to have a utility that can bankroll that. And in the cases of a lot of coal stations, one of the things that I've learned is they have multiple owners. But even if the utility that owns the station today does not want to build nuclear, that doesn't mean that you can't attract a new owner. And that's where maybe those next steps are understanding the value of the assets inclusive of the people and really putting a business case together of why that might be the right thing to do in those particular areas. Whenever I go into any kind of public discussion about nuclear, though, I'm very careful to make sure that folks understand that I'm not there to sell. Ultimately, what I'm hoping is that they can learn enough about the technology so that they can feel comfortable engaging in a discussion with potentially bringing the right people together around that. Every community needs to be able to say no. Nuclear power currently accounts for 19% of energy generated in the U.S. and about half of our carbon-free energy. But the technology has changed over the years, leading to new terminology, such as advanced nuclear or small modular reactors or just simply new nuclear. Let's think about this analogy. Think about what phones used to be. Plugged into the wall, you had a dial, and you had to go all the way around, right? We had five-digit phone numbers, right? So you think about the digital revolution. We're experiencing that same digital revolution of having a computer in your pocket with a cell phone. It's the same type of innovation that we're seeing in new nuclear. What that means is we're building units of different sizes. We're using different coolants. We're taking advantage either through engineering or the physics of the reactions to have inherently or passive safe 
And what that means is you don't have to have the human interaction in accident scenarios. So these reactors, some people call it walk away safe. We're not going to walk away. We're going to stay right there. But it's really taking advantage of all the improvements in digital technologies and bringing that into, into these new designs and plants. Nuclear has a range of challenges, from public perception to the regulation around siting to ensure safety. But one of the biggest challenges is cost. I hope what we get is the same benefit and learning that renewables had from massive deployment of their technology. And we're not the only technology that by going to scale and deploying in economies of scale that the cost of your product comes down. And that's just a a natural aspect of doing it. The fact that we are designing and building smaller units gives us the ability to manufacture them in modules and then ship the modules. The thing about our developers today is they know the price point they need to hit. And that is constantly coming into the design decisions that they're making. But what we have to do is we have to build the first-of-a-kind plants. We have to start building the infrastructure and the supply chain and all of those things such that it becomes something that we're doing, that, that we have that muscle memory. It is possible with big projects. How many airplanes do we build in a year? In 2022, the two major airline manufacturers, Airbus and Boeing, delivered more than 1,000 airplanes. So if you think about building something equally complex, equally regulated, right, we can figure this out. Being the first can be hard. But around the country, there are a number of advanced nuclear projects being completed, with many coming online within the decade. The beauty of what we're doing right now is we're building full-scale demonstration projects. These are, I would say, 90% of what we would be putting into the next unit. There's going to be learnings associated with it. There's materials that we want to use in future units that aren't available today. So you'll see those types of changes happen, but those will be to the benefit of cost and future operations. You're going to see micro-reactors operating within the next two years, one of them being at Idaho National Labs, the Marvel reactor we expect will be online. We also have the Department of Defense project, Project Pele, in that same time frame. Now, theirs is going to be a transportable micro-reactor. We have other companies that are building demonstrations and commercial-scale units. You have Aurora with Oklo, which is in that 2025-2026 time frame. Kairos is building a Hermes reactor in Oak Ridge, adjacent actually to Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And then you get into the advanced reactor demonstration projects the DOE is funding, and you have TerraPower and X-Energy in that 27, 28, 29 timeframe, along with the new scale project, the carbon-free power project in the 29 timeframe. 
And what's happening is as these projects are moving forward and the licensing is happening, there's just hundreds of conversations going on in terms of who wants to build the next one. And that's where it's hard. And it's because you're asking someone to commit to something that's not done yet. And then we have the experience from Vogel with the schedule and cost overruns. So one of the things that recently came out from the loan programs office is looking at what, what kind of financial instruments could the government put forward that would help to encourage the next set of projects to go forward. So is new nuclear even possible for Craig? Part of the equation might be looking at what's happening in other states and what utilities might be interested in. When you think about the moves that Pacificor has been making in Wyoming and Utah, they have the one project with TerraPower at the Naughton Coal Station. They've announced that they're going to do five more in Wyoming. They're going to do five in Utah. So you're talking about a utility that has figured out the value in northwestern Colorado. You not only have Tri-State, you have Excel. Excel has nuclear in their broader portfolio, right? So are they maybe the next off-takers? What are they thinking about for their plant in that region at the Hayden Station? They're talking about molten salt technology. Molten salt technology heated by a nuclear power plant could give you a, a lot of the ability to put as much renewables on the grid and then have that peaking power when you need it. So you need the owner to participate in terms of getting you the information. But I think you could look at the potential for that site, the transmission connections that it has. How do we maximize all these different transmission connections that we have and use them at full capacity? The conversation is not only about if nuclear is feasible, but whether or not Craig would even want it. This requires doing the work of having hard conversations which also means it will be a slow process. But hopefully, time well spent to achieve a more successful outcome for the community. If you're going to site any sort of nuclear technology, whether it's waste, fuel fabrication, whether you're doing uranium mining, um, or a reactor, okay, you're talking about a relationship that's going to last 80 to 100 years. Everybody should be comfortable with that because once you're moving the amount of money that it costs to build any of these facilities, abandoning them in place is just as bad as decommissioning a coal station. The utilities have these relationships in the community. Some good, some bad, but they have these relationships in the community. So you would expect that you would use those established relationships as a way to have these conversations. Certainly in my work, I don't drop into a community without having a local partner that has invited me. It's just rude. I mean, it's just rude. And does it introduce risk? Does it make them nervous? 
Of course. But if you get on the back end of that, a community that is pulling your technology towards them, you are in a much stronger position. You're going to get the support that you need around the construction peak, the partnership that you need. So I think it is 100% worth it, sweaty palms and all. Almost always, the conversation comes back to people and perceptions. Whether that's job creation from converting a coal station to nuclear or what people perceive about the waste. And let's talk a little bit about workforce. That's where I spend a lot of my time, gets me out of bed to work on this issue, to be quite honest with you. When you work at a coal station and when you work at a nuclear station, many of the jobs are the same. I think people tend to think that a nuclear power plant needs a lot of nuclear engineers running around. You need some of those, but you don't need a whole lot. What we need in a nuclear plant is very similar to what you need in a coal station. You need mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, you need millwrights, you need pipe fitters, you need welders. So when they looked at a workforce transition looking at education and skill sets, 90% of the workforce could find a job at the nuclear plant. You could be looking at an addition of five to 600 jobs to the region. And these are good-paying jobs, just like working at the coal station is good-paying jobs. And personally, coal workers didn't get a choice. And so I believe they should get the first opportunity to have the new technology, whatever that might be. The one thing I've learned about many of these communities is they're generations that live there. And they want to keep their kids at home. You have, to have a, you have to have a viable economy for that. I think about our existing nuclear stations today, they would describe themselves as energy communities. It's centered to who we are. We're proud about what we do for our nation. Not every country has reliable, affordable energy. And that's not an easy thing to pull off. We don't walk the red carpet or anything like that, but we are proud about being that underpinning such that people are surprised when they have a blackout, right? They're actually pretty darn frustrated when they have a blackout. Well, there's thousands of us that work to make that happen. Another important topic around nuclear is the fuel. Where do we get it? And what do we do with it? Our new nuclear plants, okay, I'm going to throw a technical term out there. Many of them are going to use what's called high assay, low enriched uranium. It just means the percent of uranium available for the reaction is a higher percentage. Today's fleet operates at about 5%. We will be going up to about 20% in these other designs that will use HALU is what it's called because nuclear is really good at pumping out the acronyms, too. So HALU can be produced a variety of different ways. It's increasing the concentration. So you can either start with freshly mined uranium, or we can think about recycling and reprocessing. Reprocessing requires us to make a national decision that we want to close the fuel cycle. Other nations have decided to do that. 
it opens up the door for us to recycle the waste from our current fleet of plants. We do, in North America, mine uranium. So we do have sources to, to support that. But what was initially planned was that we would be purchasing a lot of that from Russia. And that's just not a tenable situation right now. That's why we have to domesticate it. And when you look at what Canada is planning to do in terms of the transition of their coal assets, they have a large new nuclear program as well. So I think you'll see a North American strategy emerge in this front. The U.S. has prohibited the reprocessing of used nuclear reactor fuel since 1977. So there is no recycling being done, even though other countries like France, Germany, and Japan do this. This has been internationally debated for decades, mostly tied to concerns around weaponization. There is still energy and value in the spent fuel, especially with these new technology designs. But the spent fuel conversation continues to have hurdles. It's not green goo. It's not what you see on The Simpsons. <laughs> it's little ceramic pellets. So a uranium fuel pellet is about the size of a gummy bear, and it's ceramic. And it is put inside of a zirconium tube, and those tubes are arranged in a 17 by 17 array, and that makes up a fuel assembly. You're talking about maybe the size of a slice of bread if you were to look at the top of it. So those fuel assemblies in today's reactor will spend about six years in the reactor. And then they come out and they'll spend five years in a spent fuel pool, thermally cooling down. But once they reach a thermal temperature that our casks are designed for, then they're pulled out of the pool and put into a large stainless steel cylinder. And then you'll vacuum out all the water. You'll replace the air with inert air so there's no rusting. You'll seal it up. And then you'll put it inside of a concrete canister. And that's where it will live. And until we have a consolidated storage facility in the United States, we are going to be storing it on site. Deciding where to put the waste is one of the barriers to building new nuclear facilities. So the Department of Energy has committed to a consent-based siting process. Consent-based siting is meant to build trust to ensure that any placement of long-term storage is centered on the needs and concerns of a community and that a community has the right to say no. You can walk up to that canister. It's monitored. There's no radioactive gases releasing. It's not thermally hot. There's no danger to you. Clearly, we would not let people walk up to it. It's on the same plant site as your nuclear station. It's protected by the same security that we have of the nuclear station. Nuclear workers get less radiation than you would get from a set of chest x-rays. What we get in natural radiation, just in the plane ride I took here, 
We don't think about that, right? We don't think about getting on a plane and the exposure to radiation. I've had more dose from my doctors than I've had from my job. Public perception of nuclear energy is still quite divided. Pew Research did a study in 2022, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, about new production of nuclear power. They found that 35% of adults encourage production, while 26% think the government should discourage it. The rest are mostly on the fence. I wish all of us would come to this conversation with empathy and trust. There's a lot to do here. And I think if we think about these once-in-a-generation conversations we're having and the opportunity to think about what we will build and leave behind, we're operating systems that people built for us 100 years ago. We're about to gift the next generation the same thing. So the first thing I do in the morning is set aside my ego and set aside my own ambition and get to work on behalf of what this could be. Christine is excited about the possibilities of innovation. Yet, she's keenly aware of the history around nuclear, including how the government has historically engaged on the topic, the trust that's needed, and that we need to be evidence-driven in our decisions if we're going to solve our decarbonization challenge. It kind of comes back to what local resources do I have and how do I best deploy them? And looking kind of like, hopefully, in your investment portfolio, you've diversified there. You know, it just makes sense to diversify in your energy space as well. Every technology has pros and cons. And because of that, you want to be able to when that technology is at its best, you're using it. And then when that technology is not at its best, some other technology is filling that gap. That's how you create a strong, resilient system. I just wish all of us in the energy industry would take a half a step back from our own technology and be energy professionals. And then really looking locally at the resources that people have and, and how there's just not a part of our energy system right now that's not changing. This is no joke. So it's not about any one of us. And it's not about how much money we can make. So we should not be setting aside any technology. This is just an amazing time to do blue sky thinking. It's about getting it as close to right as we can. And none of this moves without trust in one another. And I would just encourage us all to trust in each other's leadership and come to the conversation truly listening, not with the thing that you have to sell. What happens next in Craig is still unknown. From the plant, to the workforce, to the transmission lines, there are resources in the area that many want to see repurposed, which could be part of the solution for Craig. This is Tim Osborne from Tri-State again.
So there's uncertainty. So that causes stress on anybody. If you don't know the future, it, it's just stressful. On a large scale, Craig is, is on a crossroads. There's highways going north, south, east, and west out of Craig. So opportunities there, but it's a long ways to a more metropolitan area. So there are some challenges with that too. I don't even know that we need to look for a silver bullet. I think it's a multiple approach. There's lots of different directions that we can go as a community. And uh, we probably shouldn't be looking at everything all in one energy basket, but a little more holistically. I think it comes down to a community, whether it's a county or a city saying, hey, my revenue stream is now drying up. What do I need to do? And that creates that tension of the future. We all know that change is hard, especially when change is tied to our identity. Sometimes when people are faced with uncertainty, they put up their guard and become less open. Tim has his own approach to living with uncertainty. When it comes to change and uncertainty and and all of that, I usually don't get super worked up about change because I'm comfortable in my skin, I'm comfortable in my faith, and my relationships, especially with my wife, I really think that we can weather those changes. And as a, if I broaden that out to a community or a workplace, we have that same relationship. Uh, we can do this together. We do have to come up with a direction, but we can do this together. Craig is at a crossroads, metaphorically and physically. While there is no clear answer yet, the conversations are happening. But the clock ticks as the closure of the coal power plant and mine loom on the horizon. I want to take a moment to thank the people of Craig and everyone across our state and beyond for listening to this story, for reaching out with ideas and the desire to help. We plan to keep you updated as things move forward, but I also encourage you to check out the Craig Daily Press as they are the local paper and have done a great job covering this story. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next season of Laws of Notion coming this fall. Coal at Sunset is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. This bonus episode is hosted and written by me, Kristen Uhlenbrock. Trisha Waddell is the producer. Sound design by Jesse Boynton. Thanks to Nicole Delaney and Kate Long. For a full list of credits, check out the show notes. For more information and additional resources on season one and two of our podcast, visit lawsofnotion.org. If you have learned something new, tell us and rate and review Laws of Notion wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for subscribing and sharing the podcast with others.